Welcome to The Collective Tap, conversations about water. I'm your host, Taylor Bennett. Join us this season as our field hosts, Taz Walters and Devin Damney, explore the hidden life of water. We bring you conversations about the relationship between water and energy, manufacturing and Indiana's economy, treatment at the end of the line, and the impact of pollution on our communities. Today, we're talking about manufacturing. A 2014 study by the Indiana Chamber of Commerce reported that Indiana's manufacturing economy is more reliant on a sustainable and adequate supply of water than any other state in the nation. And manufacturing is the largest part of Indiana's economy. In this episode, we talk with Greg Ellis with the Indiana Chamber of Commerce, Nicole Morris and Travis Meek with Cummins, and T.C. Garrett with Eli Lilly Company. We discuss the role water plays in manufacturing some of the goods produced in Indiana and the critical function that they serve to the state's economy and even global health. First, let's meet Taz and Devin. Hi, I'm Taz Walters, one of the Collective TAP's non-water expert hosts. Just like you, I have lots of questions about our water. And I'm Devin Dabney. I'm also new to the world of water, but I'm here to help ask the questions you might want answered. Our first conversation is with Greg Ellis, the Vice President of Energy and Environmental Policy at the Indiana Chamber of Commerce. Greg starts us off with a discussion about the importance of water to Indiana business and economic development and how the Chamber approaches policy recommendations that support water resources. My name is Greg Ellis. I'm Vice President of Energy, Environment and Federal Affairs for the Indiana Chamber of Commerce. Uh, I advocate on behalf of the business members of Indiana for the state of Indiana on environmental and energy issues. Uh, Water is obviously one of the important things as far as that. I've heard the Chamber of Commerce before multiple times, but could you just briefly summarize what the Chamber of Commerce does? Sure, I will read you our mission statement, which is on the back of our business cards. Um, It is to cultivate a world-class environment which provides economic opportunity and prosperity for the people of Indiana and their enterprises. And I think that mission has served the chamber well and that if those businesses do well, typically the people of Indiana do well and it's a good place to work and live. So you and the Chamber of Commerce have a very important job of attracting businesses to Indiana and creating this environment for them to thrive. How does water play into that story? How important is it to Indiana's economy? Well, I mean, it's very important. I'll go back to uh, 2014, the Indiana Chamber of Commerce uh, conducted a water study. Dr. Jack Whitman uh, of Interra did that out of, out of Bloomington. And uh, I, some of the highlights of that, one of the most important things that I, I thought of that was at that time, and I still think it's true, Indiana ranked first in the country in the percentage of economy that depends on water. And that's through the manufacturing process that's through agriculture, agribusiness, uh, the pharmaceutical industry, uh, all of those businesses. More than 23% of the current economy depends on the water that flows over and through the state. And how that equates in dollars as part of Indiana's GDP that translate to over $70 billion. So that's a huge number. So obviously uh, water is a very important part of Indiana business. Uh, It's important for recreation. Uh, One of the other numbers I would throw out was $15 billion a year is spent in outdoor recreation in Indiana. And water plays a big part of that as well. That's uh, pretty amazing to hear that it's first in like priority. What role does, you know, the quantity of water we have play in the businesses that we well, look at? I mean, if you look around the state, you know, the quantity um, 
the northern third of Indiana, because of the Great Lakes, uh, the Great Lakes region, there's a, an abundance of water. The central portion of Indiana, where there's the majority of the population, there's less water and it's more uh, dedicated to consumption, uh, for, but people. Uh, the southern third of Indiana has less water. They're dependent on reservoirs and infrastructure that it's going in there. But if you look around the state, for example, most of the steel mills, which use a lot of water in their cooling and their processes, they're on Lake Michigan or they're in the northern or, or near Lake Michigan or near a, a big stream or, or river. So it's dependent on their processes. And you look at um, look at the electric generation. Most of that historically has been along rivers or where there's water and that's they use water in the process either for cooling or they'll use it uh, to power their uh, generation of steam turbines things like that so it's not consumed necessarily in the process but there are some things that consume water um, you know we have pharmaceutical industry throughout is strong in Indiana there's a lot of different things that water plays into in Indiana and so that's uh, more on the quantity side does water quality matter to these businesses yeah obviously water quality I said one of the things a couple years ago when we were involved with the wetlands bill that was one of our concerns of you know wetlands they filter out contaminants uh, it makes it easier to be treated for either drinking or if it's going to be used in a process you don't want contaminated water or, or particles of other things in your water when you're using it to cool or when you're trying to produce a clean product. Uh, so water quality is obviously important. Uh, you know, recreation, you don't want to swim in something that's bad. So uh, yeah, it's, it's obviously important. What is being done to ensure that our waters, you know, our quantity and quality stays protected so we can keep attracting businesses here? Well, I think, you know, some of what goes on is both uh, regulatory and legislatively. Uh, the General Assembly over the last couple years, last four or five years, I would say, they've done a good job as they've had some task force to study the the issue what needs to be done. There's been some money allocated uh, in the appropriations process for infrastructure and water. Water is one of those things people don't typically see it, so they don't think about it. But if it starts costing money, they think about it. Um, if pipes are leaking underground, you don't see it. You don't want leaky pipes. So, you know, that that's water quality and quantity. You, you just lose that water somewhere. And if it's wastewater, it's not a good thing either. So infrastructure, Repair and upgrades are important in the state of Indiana, uh, and, and we've done a lot of work with the General Assembly on the regulatory and legislative side to get that accomplished at the federal level, especially over the last couple years. Congress has allocated a, a lot of money for water resources, and Indiana's benefited from that, as well as you know probably most of the other states. With this study you were talking about, one of the things that I, I saw in it was talking about a long-term plan. Do you have any insights as to what that long-term plan might be? Well, I think the long-term plan, what the chamber had envisioned was, you know, we, we needed to raise awareness. We needed to, to educate people on the importance of water in Indiana based on, you know, our economy. Uh, two, what is there, the resources. We need to you know, conserve some of those resources, develop some of those resources. An example would be uh, I-69 is still being built. Along that route, there weren't a lot of water resources, but as that, that interstate's grown, some of the businesses along there have grown. They've needed infrastructure, you know, whether it be private wells, whatever, however they do those water systems, maybe from a reservoir. But with water availability, there's an opportunity for people to live and work in those areas. So we've encouraged that through education. Um, we've also advocated as part of our 
goals with the General Assembly to, to get some resources dedicated to that. That was prior to what the infrastructure bill that came out of Congress did, uh, and the General Assembly was very responsive. I'd, I would like to, Senator Charbonneau, uh, Representative Soliday, and Senator Cook were all very instrumental in getting that done, and they've been pretty helpful. So some of our listeners may have noticed quarries along the White River, different um, industrial mining activities happening. Can you talk to us about transportation and the mining industry that supports it and how they rely and interact on water? Well, I'm not an expert in all of that, but I will say along the White River, for example, you know, you had the uh, Irving Brothers material quarry uh, up on the north side of Indianapolis that material is used in the other infrastructure, roads and highways. So, you know, it's a, it's a beneficial use and it's very important. What do you see as the future of Indiana's economy with respect to water? Well, I don't think uh, I see a change as far as the importance of water in Indiana. I think, you know, we're happy as an organization that people have started to pick up on that and, and recognize the importance. And those businesses in Indiana, even during COVID, the steel mills reopened some of the plants that were closed down. They've continued to operate. We're hearing about supply chain shortages. And so those businesses have continued on. So water is still important. Um, you know, the one thing we're watching and, and, and formulating what we want to do as an organization is around climate change. We don't, if there's a drought in Indiana, that's a problem for everybody. It's a problem for agriculture. It's a problem for people that live here, work here, the processes as far as industry. So we're watching that. Uh, that was something that we had also advocated for was a drought plan. Uh, you know, we hope that we don't ever get to the point where California is, but better to be prepared than not have anything in place. How often, when you're speaking with businesses, do they bring up water? Honestly, it varies. Uh, it, you know, it depends on if they have their own well, if there's enough water there, if they're buying from a certain supply, the cost of it. Uh, when we're looking at when the General Assembly's in session and, and there are bills going around, like I said, the wetland bill I was a little surprised at. There were a number of businesses that contacted me and said, hey, we have concerns over this. This could impact our bottom line on how we process water. And a lot of them had wetlands on their property that they said, well, we're going to continue to maintain these. We see a benefit. So you, you said that uh, you don't see the importance of water changing for Indiana in the future. Do you think that we'll continue to attract businesses with our supply and our quality? As long as we have enough water, I, I do see that we would attract businesses. I think one of the things, the challenges that the chamber, uh, incoming businesses, the Indiana Eco Economic Development Corporation have is, there may not be infrastructure for a business to locate. So one of the things they look at when they come into a state is where is water available? So they look at that and, and we try to help along with that because as I said, water's available in certain parts of the states much more readily than other parts. And we would like to see that spread around. If you could say one thing to one audience about water in Indiana, who would you say it to and what would it be? I don't know that it would be one. I think it would be everybody. I think it's important to everybody. I mean, you know, water impacts us all every day. You, you need it to, you know, obviously drink, bathe, cook, uh, just live. Uh, and then you also look at the importance to the economics of Indiana, the businesses, uh, our industry, recreation. I mean, it's just important all around. Next, Nicole Morris is the Global Water Sustainability Manager, and Travis Meek is the Director of Corporate Responsibility at Cummins Incorporated. 
Cummins is a multinational engine, filtration, and power generation product manufacturer. Nicole and Travis talk about water use in Cummins operations and how a community first focus drives their conservation goals. Hi, I'm Nicole Morris, and I am the water sustainability manager for Cummins in the corporate role. So I manage water and wastewater globally for Cummins. I'm Travis Meek. I'm director of corporate responsibility at Cummins. We focus our our community engagement in three priority areas, uh, education, equality of opportunity, and environment. So um, I lead our work uh, in the environmental priority area. And within uh, that priority area, we have a strategic program called Cummins Waterworks. And so I think that's the, the connection to, to water and manufacturing that we're talking about today. First, let's start with the obvious question. What does Cummins do? Well, we manufacture engines and components for all different types of engines. We do diesel, natural gas, several different types of customers, agriculture, buses, heavy duty, marine and we manufacture all types of components for those, filtration, control systems, and then assemble the engines and test them. So this season, we're talking about how water interacts with the manufacturing industry in Indiana. I'm sure that there's a lot of different factors, but can you give us an overview of how water is involved in your operations in Indiana? We have several different types of manufacturing facilities, and we also have office buildings and daycare centers and things like that in Indiana. So our water interaction ranges from, of course, employee domestic use all the way to all different types of manufacturing uses, mainly in cooling applications, whether that's in HVAC or cooling of test cells or other machinery. Uh, We use water for machining. We use water for cleaning processes and paint processes and and the typical type manufacturing processes, and then, of course, cleaning of the facility. Um, We do use quite a bit of water in some of our regions for irrigation. Some is used for fire testing and things like that for safety of our facilities. Can you explain what irrigation means in that context? We maintain our landscapes on our facility site, so we would have, in some cases, irrigation systems to be able to maintain the aesthetic. You mentioned a lot of different applications and types of manufacturing that Cummins does. Which of those are in Indiana specifically? We have several of them in Indiana. I'd have to look to tell you exactly. We have engine manufacturers. We have several different sizes of engine manufacturing in Indiana. We have a large presence in in Indiana because that's where our home office is. Yeah, in Indianapolis, for example, uh, we have our global distribution headquarters, uh, which is where the the art canoe is installed. Yeah, and I guess we've heard a little bit about your downtown campus with a native plant landscape. We are trying to shift towards a more xeriscape approach to landscaping to avoid the need for supplemental water usage to maintain those landscapes. So we have conducted a few pilot programs in different areas of the world. Um, We've done some meadow type plantings where we use meadow grasses. We've done sort of like wildflower fields, things like that to see what's successful and what is palatable to our employees as well as the community. So the downtown campus was designed with native plantings and the xeriscape in mind. Um, It's not a total 
zero water use landscape um, or zero irrigation landscape, but it has been designed to reduce the amount of supplemental water that is needed as well as the maintenance required to maintain the landscape. We're trying to move away from large areas of turf and things like that, so we reduce the maintenance required as well as any uh, related air emissions for mowing, those types of secondary impacts to the water impact. That's great. Are there any other conservation efforts like that that Cummins is doing? We focus on several different what we call critical X's. And what we have done analysis of our baseline usages throughout our company. If you look at our total life cycle um, and our total use as far as a product manufacturing process, the majority of our water consumed is at the um, supplier level because of mining and things like that. And so our focus within my department is on our facilities and operations and how we can best utilize water within our own boundary. The critical X is that we started working on for our 2030 goals are irrigation reduction, fire system, test reuse, test water reuse, and wastewater reuse. We started several years ago. Cummins has had goals in place since 2012, I think, was when the first one was published for water, and that was to reduce our consumption by 30%, which was a normalized reduction. So it was gallons per man hour reduction. So it was normalized based on production. That was a 2020 goal. We met and exceeded that goal. Um, early. So we increased that goal to 50%. We exceeded that as well. So when we set our new 2030 goal, we changed it and it's no longer normalized. And we looked at it from a scientific background. And according to data by 2040, we will be at a 40% deficit in water supply versus our need. So to counteract that 40%, we decided to set a goal for a 30% absolute reduction of our water consumption based on a 2018 baseline. And so it's no longer normalized by production. It's based on an absolute number. And then at that time, we didn't have the Waterworks program and we had a community project piece that was within my organization. And it was, it was we called it water neutrality. And so we had started working with sites in water-stressed regions to become water-neutral in stressed communities. And through that program, we had already restored enough water to offset Cummins water total globally. So our thinking around the 40% offset would be that we would create an additional 10% through our community and the 30% would come from our in-house operations. So that's sort of how we did that. And the three things that we chose to focus on in addition to conservation areas within the facility were irrigation, fire test reuse, and wastewater reuse to try to be more sustainable within our walls, so to speak, and to reduce our impact on the external municipality supply. To get a sense of the scale, about how much water are we talking about here when you're talking about that reduction? That reduction is around, I believe it's around 286 million gallons a year. That's and a lot of water. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot of water. And that's from our baseline usage in 2018. Just when you're talking about that amount of water and you're talking about how you source your water, when you're drying that water to use in your manufacturing, to use in irrigation, all of these things. Where is that coming from, both globally and in Indiana? The majority is coming from 
municipal water supplies that would be from the local community. We do have a small amount of rainwater harvesting and some groundwater that is being used, but the majority is coming from your local municipality. And one of the things that we're looking at, in addition to how we can conserve and eliminate the need for water and production and things is, you know, alternative water sources. You know, can we capture condensate and reuse that water? Can we um, capture rainwater and reuse it on site and then discharge it to the local community so that hydraulically that, that water's not lost, that we're still putting it back. In some of our facilities, we have infiltration of water into our basement areas and things like that, that we have to actually pump out, you know, on a daily basis and discharge. Can we use that water before we discharge it? We want we want to make sure that our impact is ultimately um, positive. Yeah, it sounds like uh, there's a lot going on or a lot of efforts being put towards um, having, you know, either closed circuit systems with water or just using it as much as you can. Obviously, you're making engines for someone or you're manufacturing things for other companies. Is there any way or are there any ways that you can slash are incentivizing this sort of behavior with your partners? A lot of our partners already are doing similar things. If you look at their sustainability reporting and, and things like that, they're they're concerned with that. Some of our larger customers, you know, ask for those reports from us. So they expect us to um, maintain certain scores and things like that on those reports. We have worked with our suppliers to try to make sure that they're managing risk of water stressed areas and, and those types of things. Our main focus is, of course, within ourselves and, and making sure that we're, we're doing everything that we can. So we have an environmental champion program. It started years ago as the energy champion program <clears throat> when we first started on the, on the trek towards ISO 50001 in a lot of our sites. It's morphed over the years into the environmental champion program. It's heavy on energy and water. Um, it's just now starting to pick up on waste as well. And so we're trying to make that a culture shift within our organization all the way, all the way from the top to the bottom. We've talked about water quantity a little bit. Can we talk about water quality? Does the quality of the water in Indiana impact your manufacturing? And also, how do you deal with the quality when you're putting it back into the system? Well, for the most part, the quality that we bring in because it's coming from a municipality already meets drinking water standards and meets the quality requirements for the majority of operations. There are few operations that may require a higher quality water and so it may require a, a deionization system or a reverse osmosis system or something like that but that would be more on a small scale more of a process type treatment scale not not on a large scale so we don't really have that issue uh, when it's when we're talking about water coming from municipalities as far as returning it back all of our sites have either permitted discharge that is a direct discharge permit which would be a like an NPDES, where it would be a stormwater type permit where it goes back into or waterway or on land, or either they would have a, a wastewater discharge permit where they're sending their wastewater to a municipal wastewater treatment facility to be treated again. So um, we have a rigorous compliance program that is managed by a central group within North America, as well as a corporate group that would oversee all of those different requirements. 
I want to make sure that our listeners understand those metrics that you mentioned earlier when you were talking about reduction of use. There were two figures. One, you were talking about reduction of water usage per man hour. Right. And then the other, you were talking about a global deficit of water use. Could you explain what those two mean? What I was talking about is in our previous goal for 2020, our reduction was normalized based on production. So when we measured our intensity of water use, it was stated in such a way that we use X number of gallons per man hour. So it was normalized based on production. And then when we switched our goal because of the science behind it, we switched from a normalized goal to an absolute number. So now it's not normalized by man hour. It's just an absolute consumption figure. So we have to reduce a certain number of gallons regardless of man hours worked. It forces us to be even more efficient with our water use, which is really the right way to be thinking about these things. The 40% number is just that they estimate that with population growth, with agricultural needs increasing, and all of the things that go into the need for water, the estimate is we will be withdrawing 40% more water than the system can replenish itself. And that's if we continue business as usual. You know, nothing changes. Nobody conserves anything. You know, at the rate we're consuming today, by 2040, we're going to be exceeding our replenish by 40%. Does that make sense? So aquifers and waterways won't be able to replenish fast enough to keep up with demand. And that's globally, not necessarily specifically in Indiana. That's globally. The way we've looked at it is we have in the past traditionally worked more stringently on areas that were water stressed, where either just the climate itself, water was scarce, or logistically the system wasn't in place to provide water to to people. Um, So that's where we have focused a lot of our attention in the past on, especially on our community type projects, trying to replenish that water, trying to make sure that those communities and those employees and their families and those communities have access to clean water. In turn, that helps us have access to the best employees. And we don't want to be a burden to that community with our facilities. So we've tried to make sure that those facilities have been even more efficient than we would be in an area where water seems plentiful. We've talked a lot about the manufacturing side of things, but I'm just selfishly curious about the community side. Um, mm-hmm. Could we well, talk? The community some? side is the fun stuff. Yeah, so. yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It is, and and just like from my perspective, I I'm a very big uh, community advocate, and I like to be involved uh, at the ground level at things. So yeah, like could you could you all talk some more about yeah what you do and what projects you have going? Honestly, you know, I'm gonna tell you this one quote that I had a supervisor years ago that just recently retired from Cummins and we used to always sit and talk about our community projects and we talked about you know when we are old and retired and we're on the porch in our rocking chair none of us are going to remember how many engines we made in 2020 or in 2017 or whatever year it is but we're going to always remember that community project we did so that is the stuff that matters the most to our employees and is the heart of our program so 
I'm excited to see what Travis says and and it's a really great program. Yeah, it's it's absolutely the fun stuff. So so I can kind of start wide and then then zoom in a little bit to Indiana to answer your question, Devin. Um, so corporate responsibility, our overarching goal, right, is to improve the communities where we where we live and work. And we do it by focusing on the three priority areas that I mentioned earlier. Um, and the mechanisms we use, right, are your you know traditional sort of grant making, right, that, that, that's funded through the Cummins Foundation, but also through uh, engagement, employee engagement, and looking for opportunities where our employees um, can leverage their, their unique skills and abilities to really make a, a unique impact in our communities, right? I mean, we've got thousands of brilliant engineers working at Cummins. So we're always looking for opportunities where, you know, we can, we can use that engineering expertise to help a community partner solve a problem. And in the environmental space, um, you know, all that, all that holds true. And then, and then drilling down to our, to our strategic program within the environmental space, Cummins Waterworks. It's a relatively new program, although as you heard from Nikki, I mean, there have been water-based environmental initiatives uh, in our communities going on for years. And, and Nikki and her colleagues on the corporate side have been doing great work um, to, to give back to our communities and, and, and improve the communities and, and generally be mindful of the, of the water consumption that we're causing and, and then that desire to, to offset that and, and give back. So Cummins Waterworks was really just a, like a formalization of all that great work that, that they've been doing over the years. So in the year and change since Cummins Waterworks has been up and running, uh, we've invested close to $10 million around the world with partners such as the Nature Conservancy and water.org to not only reap those volumetric water benefits that ultimately we can use to offset some of our own consumption, but also to affect the water quality task. So specifically in Indiana, we've partnered with the Nature Conservancy to focus on um, the Wabash River watershed, which, right, like you guys know as well as I do, that's, it, it's the most, and I, we, we say nutrient rich, and I think people hear nutrient rich and they're like, oh, that's a good thing, nutrients. But like, when you're talking about nitrogen and phosphorus coming from fertilizer runoff, that's not really the kind of nutrients you want in your, when your water system. But the Wabash River watershed is the single biggest contributor of those for a quote unquote bad nutrients, if you will, into the Mississippi River, which then again, as you guys know, ultimately causes that hypoxic zone down in the Gulf of Mexico that can't really sustain any plant or animal life. So uh, about six months ago, we, we entered into this three-year multi-million dollar uh, partnership with the Nature Conservancy to focus on both those, the upstream nutrient issue that I mentioned before, uh, and then sort of the downstream um, Gulf of Mexico oyster reef development, which is really cool work. So the upstream stuff in Indiana, trying to work with farmers to build out and engage in those sustainable farming practices, right, through programs like 4R, you know, right, using fertilizers at the, you know, the right time, the right place, the right source, the right rate, right, to reduce the amount of nitrogen and phosphorus that's ending up in, in the, primarily the White River, which ultimately is part of that Wabash River watershed. So, you know, you've got the, the East Fork there, I think, of the White River that is close to our facilities in Seymour and Columbus. Um, and then you've got the upper branch, I think they call it, which is around Indianapolis. So that sort of connects to our, our DBU headquarters here in Indianapolis. We're helping to fund the work that the Nature Conservancy is doing with a lot of their partners. And also we're trying to raise awareness within Cummins because we've got a number of folks 
who, yeah, they might be an engineer at Cummins, but they also, they have a farm. They've got a family farm, of several hundred or several thousand acres. So we're trying to convene those sort of conversations at Cummins to help people learn about the importance of adopting those sustainable farming practices. You mentioned the art canoe a while ago, and I just wanted to say on the record, thanks for being a part of the value of water project. And uh, yeah, that we just that we appreciated it. I just wanted to throw that in. Devin, I appreciate you mentioning that. That, that was, a, you know, Nicole mentioned the, the fun we get to have in, in corporate responsibility and with our community work. That one was was really fun. And once we did that, we took some pictures and put it on our Cummins intranet. So employees knew what we were doing. You wouldn't believe the amount of interest that story generated. Like it, it, it got like more hits than, you know, any other story that month. So so employees have been really excited about it, too. So thanks for giving us the opportunity to partner with you guys on that. Now, Taos and Devon speak with T.C. Garrett, a senior principal associate with the health, safety, and environment team at Eli Lilly. T.C. shares how water is used in sensitive operations, like the production of pharmaceuticals. My name is T.C. Garrett. I work for Eli Lilly. I am a senior HSC principal for the water aspects for the campuses, for Lilly campuses. So Lilly is a household name in Indiana and a global leader in the pharmaceutical industry. As an organization the size of Eli Lilly, you're going to use a lot of water across your operations. Can you give us a brief overview of the variety and scale of water use across operations here in Indianapolis? Okay, so Lilly has numerous locations in Indiana, but there's two primary ones in Indianapolis. There is the main campus at the Lilly Corporate Center, and then there's the Lilly Technology Center. I liken both of these locations to the size of a college campus. They're very large in size, and if you walk from one end of the Lilly Technology Center to the other, it's roughly a mile. If you can envision that, we're talking about miles and miles of piping for proper operations um, at the site. And those operations would include offices, cafeterias, research laboratories, and then you have your utility operations as well. So, you know, all the water treatment and then, of course, manufacturing, which is the largest use of water for the site. Can you speak a little bit to the impact of those operations on the state and regional economy? Well, Lilly has 14 manufacturing locations in 77 countries around the globe. And there's more than 36,000 employees globally. More than 10,000 of those 36 are in Indianapolis. And, you know, Lily has a great commitment to Indiana and specifically to Indianapolis because it's home to our corporate headquarters and it's host to our largest asset base and largest workforce out of all of the 14 locations. So over the last five years, Lilly has invested more than $2.6 billion in Indiana operations, and more than half of that dollar figure was specific to manufacturing. As a result, the employment workforce has increased more than 100 individuals, and we have roughly 3,700 employees in the state of Indiana. That's a huge figure. I'm curious, you know, about in terms of water usage, where is Lily's water sourced from? 
all of the water coming into the technology center, as well as the corporate center, is city, municipal city water supply. And that water is very clean, high quality drinking water. Uh, however, because we're in pharmaceuticals, we then have to purify the water even further to meet strict regulatory criteria and really for patient safety. What's that additional process doing that the municipal supply hasn't already done to the water? Because we have to go through purification and sterilization, the first thing that we do is a water softening step. So similar to what many people might have in their homes, we have water softeners. However, our water softeners are like the size of a basketball court. They're huge. And the incoming water is hard because it's got magnesium and calcium in it. And which isn't necessarily a water quality concern, but it does have a significant impact on the efficiency of our equipment. So we get, we put the water through a water softening process and, and then it goes through other purification steps like filtration to remove fine solids. It goes through uh, heat sanitizing. It goes through pH adjustment and it goes through a UV light process as well for microbial control. So because we're using it in pharmaceutical, it's it's really important that this water is very, very pure and it, it won't have an impact on our product. Do you have to do testing after you do your treatment process to ensure that it's up to the quality that you Absolutely. Need? We do testing on the front end and that's why we know the supply is high quality coming to us. So we do testing on the front end and then it, in between each of the steps that the water goes through, we do additional testing to ensure that the operations, the, the actual purification step is effective. It sounds like there's a lot of testing and purification and additional processes after, or, you know, to make sure the water is usable for you. With that in mind, is the ambient water quality coming in a concern? Well, Again, the ambient water quality coming in, we do have to manage the hardness of the water, right? So that that is probably our number one concern. But generally, Lily operates in areas that are low risk with regards to water quality and quantity. So, and that's that's intentional because having a high quality water source that it's readily available is critical to manufacturing these pharmaceuticals. And then what happens to the water after you're done with it? Do you release it back into the municipal supply? Do you treat it again before putting it back into the system? What happens on that it, it does go into an on-site treatment process. However, it's then discharged to the wastewater city's wastewater process. So it goes through the Belmont, primarily through the Belmont wastewater treatment system, which is very close to the location. With water being so essential for your operations and the future of water being potentially uncertain, are there any plans in place if the water supply is impacted either from climate change or even just growing demand in our state for water? Yes, our engineers and, and uh, environmental resources, they're, 
continually assessing water risks. We have modeling programs. We're actively looking at conserving and reducing water use for the site, uh, numerous different projects that would address these sorts of things. So in that process, we, we put a lot of energy on the front end to ensure that as projects, as the process changes, we are considering environmental impacts and we're doing what we can to ensure that our water supply is sustainable. On that note of just adapting to change, how in general do you manage change at, at Lilly? So there's a formal change management process. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but it's a very specific process that would include any change to add a new piece of equipment or modify or replace a piece of equipment. And in this process, there's an environmental evaluation piece. So when anything gets changed, we would step through how is the impact air, water, waste, and we make sure we're intentional about considering every one of those media aspects so that we, if we can implement, integrate recycling or minimization st uh, steps of that project, we do so on the front end. In many ways, this may actually cost us more money, but down the road, we don't then have the need to go back and redo things because we've already considered them on the front end. So with all of that in mind, do you have any water protection efforts or, or conservation efforts that you can highlight for us? Yes. Yeah, so, uh, you know, Lily does an excellent job. It really, we set up internal environmental goals and metrics and we track the, the data and our environmental systems to make sure that we understand our operations and we are being diligent at ensuring we don't have uh, something out of the ordinary. We also have, you know, more than a dozen dedicated environmental resources just for the Lilly Technology Center. So you've got a dozen people who are working on, on a number of different things. And then in, on top of the dedicated resources, we have support roles. So electricians, lab techs, supervisors, many of them have environmental components rolled into their jobs. You know, water protection at the site, we do walk around inspections, we do computer modeling, we have uh, training and procedures developed, we lead implementation projects, all in an effort to ensure our water resources are sustainable. Does this also include conservation efforts? You know, so if a project comes in, we would we would minimize the use of water, certainly if we are able to do so. One of the projects that comes to mind is our um, reject water. So the water goes through the purification steps, as I had mentioned before, and sometimes it doesn't pass, right? We, we do that testing in between each step, and if it doesn't pass, it's considered reject. Years ago, we would take that reject water and just dis discharge it to our sanitary waste stream. Uh, but we have found uh, an opportunity to put that into our cooling towers and reuse it so that we're not drawing more water for that application. We can then reuse that reject water for the cooling towers. 
Can you talk a little bit about how your organization supports water protection efforts in the community? We're active in many local environmental organizations, White River Alliance being one of them. Just last week, Lilly had their 15th anniversary for their Lilly Global Day of Service. And that is where thousands of Lilly local employees are in various service projects around the area. And some of those projects are environmentally focused. Uh, planting trees, cleaning up the shorelines and waterways of the White River, um, and even putting no dumping stickers on storm drains. Uh, so that is one, you know, one way we contribute significantly. And also recently, Lily constructed Urban Park, which is actually it's called South Street Square Park. And it was a park that is designed for public use. That park in itself, you know, was designed with underground detention, a significant amount of underground detention so that when the storm comes, there is alleviation of that storm water in the city's sewer system. So, you know, the underground detention has, you know, intention not just to hold it, but hopefully to have that water drain into the groundwater system instead of going into the storm sewer system. Trying to understand the value of water means understanding how vital it is to our daily lives. Follow along this season of The Collective Tap as we dip further into the hidden life of water. Still to come this season, the murky world of wastewater and the impacts of pollution on our communities. The Collective Tap is a project of the White River Alliance, a 501c3 organization located in Indianapolis, Indiana. We are an alliance of diverse interests and organizations that work together to steward the river and its watershed. It is made possible with generous funding from the Nina Mason Pulliam Charitable Trust. If you want to learn more, visit us at thecollectivetap.com or at thewhiteriveralliance.org. Produced in partnership with Absorb.